Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Brian Lubers, Dr. Dustin Pendle, Dr. Philip Lancaster. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to have you with us and happy to have you listening with us as well. And as always, we appreciate you joining in. And if you have comments or things you'd like us to talk about on the show, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. We enjoy having the opportunity to visit with you and talk about what's going on around the country. And we're going to do a little bit of that today as, as we talk about some of the parts of the country have been pretty dry. And so we're going to talk about what are some drought management strategies, even though we're not quite to spring, it's time to start thinking about what we could potentially do to help our herd get through what's a tough time. We'll also talk a little about conflict resolution. And we wanted to follow up last week. We talked a little bit about naval ill or joint ill where we may have some problems right after calving. And a couple things came up there that we had some questions on that I wanted to get you guys to, to follow up on. Before we get into those topics, it has been fun for the most part, watching the football playoffs and getting ready for the Super Bowl. And, and I've got to ask you, as you've worked through the bracket of different snacks that you've had, you're only keeping what's good each week and you get to the Super Bowl and you get whatever is the best snack at your house, What's your best Super Bowl snack? Um, well, I'll start. I guess I, I like the dips. And so we trial ran a chicken enchilada dip this weekend that was was pretty darn good. It'll probably show back up here coming up soon. Yeah, I kind of like I love Brian. I, I like chips and dip a lot of times. I like what we call seven-layer dip. Yeah. Pretty good. So I tr did a trial this weekend, too, and I did uh, ribeyes, uh, Wagyu ribeyes. Uh, they were pretty good. Everybody seemed to like them, cut them up in little strips and have everybody just kind of sample them. So I was, you know, also going back to kind of my part of my new year's resolution, right? I said, I was gonna eat more beef. And so I'm getting both of them all at the same time. <laughs> hey, that's a, that's a good one, Dustin. And uh, you could invite us over, right? I mean, we're close that's, enough. If you're going to be absolutely. having for a snack. Yeah, I think absolutely. Would... So one, one of the things that we talked last week, guys, and Brian, you mentioned, Naval ill, and we talked about naval ill or joint ill as being conditions where when that calf is born, if it's in an unsanitary environment or sometimes just bad luck, they can get an infection. That infection can cause an abscess or basically that infection can form around their belly or it can form in the joints. One of the things that we did not talk about, and we had a question after the show was, how do you treat that? You said call the vet, but but maybe give us some background. Sure. What's that, what's that going to look like? Yeah, I'll I'll stick with my original answer. Yeah, you you still this is those are cases where you need to have a veterinarian involved, and and it depends a little bit on what disease you have, like what what the signs or what the what the outcome of that umbilical infection is. Um, sometimes you get an abscess um, right there, right there at the skin where the where the umbilical cord attaches. Um, and in those cases, it could be as simple as, you know, draining the abscess, or it might actually be that the veterinarian, if that, if that infection starts to move. So the umbilical cord where your belly button is, um, there's actually a vein that goes up to the liver. And so if that infection starts to travel up there, the veterinarian might actually have to do a surgical procedure and remove the whole basically remove the whole belly button and part of that infected vein. If the, if it moves all the way up, sometimes you get abscesses around or close to the liver. 
obviously that's a you know those types of internal abscesses that's a lot more involved and so that that's a that's a complete surgical drainage and if you end up with the joint ill which is the you know you get the bacteria through the umbilical cord and they get into the bloodstream and then they settle out in the joints you know it's probably antimicrobial therapy and maybe flushing flushing those joints but as we talked last week you know the outcome for those cases is is not very good so but like I said, any of any and all of those presentations really require a, a veterinary involvement. So one of the things that you said, Brian, that the outcome is typically not very good. So we started to get into a little bit of prevention and, and a lot of our prevention is centered around a nice place to calve. I mean, we can talk about, you talked about, well, maybe some disinfectant on that navel. Well, a lot of times with our beef calves, we may or may not be around them at that point. And if they're out in a clean pasture, that can certainly help. And Philip, you ask about the Sand Hills system and if that could help. And certainly Brian said that can help in some of these cases. But what we didn't have time to do is kind of define what, do, what did you mean by Sand Hills calving system? So it, it's a calving system that stages cows based on kind of when they calve and and keeping in a, a clean environment for the most recently born calves. And so a good, or a, a, I guess a description of it would be that you have to have multiple calving pastures, but all the animals start in the same pasture. And then after a couple of weeks, you've got some calves that have been born. And, and so those animals, those pairs are going to stay in that pasture. But then you move the remaining pair, or remaining pregnant cows to the next pasture. And so the, now that's a clean pasture for these newly born calves that are going to hit the ground in the next couple of weeks. And so then you just keep that same process. After a couple more weeks, you're going to move the pregnant cows and leave the pairs where they are. And so now you've got a clean environment every two weeks for those cows that are dropping new calves. And help prevent some of those disease issues. Absolutely. And I think you can modify that system a little bit. Some people will talk about it as two weeks. Some people say a week. I've had others say, you know what, we're going to move them once after a big bunch of the calves have been born, maybe three weeks into the season, because it, it becomes a challenge logistics wise to have enough pastures, to have enough water set up, to have enough feeding but if you have scours, if you have challenges with those calves, that is one of that using that Sandhills calving system is one of the best ways to break out of that. Brian, would you would you agree? And this may help some with our navel ill. Yeah, yeah. The I think most of the original reasons for the Sandhill calving system were actually the scours, right? That that's kind of what it's the disease it's targeted for. But you know, as Philip described, what you have is you have the youngest, most susceptible calves calving on a cleaner environment. So, it, so it'll help with some other diseases too. And, you know, navel ill, like we talked about last week, that's one of those things. It's not, it's not something we see very often. And so I don't, you know, the Sandhills calving, I wouldn't go to the Sandhills calving system just because you had it one or two cases of navel ill, but it is something that if you have other health issues and you're looking to transition to some other management technique to it, it should help with that as well. Yeah, one of the one of the best things you could do with scours, and and I would say to kind of wrap that topic up, you you may if you've got some issues with navel ill or with scours, good time to visit with your veterinarian and a good time to kind of plan out because when you're in the thick of it, it becomes hard. So it makes sense to 
pre-plan that if possible, which leads directly to our next topic. And, and this is one, guys, that I've talked with several people, and depending on where you are in the country, this affects you to varied degrees, that we've had a really dry fall and winter, and folks are still feeding hay, thinking about spring coming on, saying, man, I don't know how that grass is going to do if we don't get some moisture. And I wanted to ask you guys, even though we're not to grazing season yet, if I'm, if I'm concerned about drought and I want to kind of plan this forward, what are some of the things I should start thinking about at this point? Well, I guess I can start, but you know, the biggest thing with drought is how much feed do you have and how many mouths do you have to feed? And so you start thinking about those two things. And from a, from a feed resource perspective, you know, some things to start thinking about and maybe have a, a plan in place, not that you have to implement it yet, but, you know, could you plant some more drought tolerant crops to use for grazing? Some of the, the sorghums or um, things like that, uh, so that you've got some more forage resources. If it is drier, um, looking for alternative pasture already, getting ahead of other people and, and maybe securing that pasture and or hay you know, finding a, a hay source ahead of time and, and securing some of that hay. Even if you buy it now and you don't end up using it or, or don't use all of it, then you've got it for next winter and you can can shift your just your hay purchase dollar from to now from next year. So those are, I guess those are some things right off the top of my head that I would start to think about. One thing I'll add, Brad, to Philip's comment is, do you have, you know, hay acres that can become grazable? just to add on to the feedstuff comment, but there might be some other considerations, right? Water, fencing. So those are some things that you might want to keep in the back of your mind as you're thinking about that from a feed perspective. Yeah, and that's a good, that's a good uh, point, Dustin. You know, depending on where you are, some pastures may be watered out of a stock pond and that stock pond might go dry. And so now that pasture becomes non-usable or, or it requires a whole lot of work to be able to water animals out there. So, so, Plan, maybe plan which pastures get grazed first as you're going into the grazing season. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's really two ways to approach drought, right? It's how do I get in big buckets? How do I get more feed or can I have less grazing pressure or less feed pressure? Right. So Philip and Dustin both talked about more acquiring more feed stuff. So I'll talk about the other side, which is, you know, what are the things that you can do to minimize the, the feed needs or grazing pressure, however you want to word that. So you think about, you know, things that you can do for making culling decisions earlier this, you know, kind of mid to late summer. What can we do to get calves off of pasture sooner? And, and especially if we're sending them out, you know, and what are th- what kind of things we think about as far as open cows, and that kind of rolls into culling, but how do we think about open cows? And then do we want to feed differently and maybe maybe consider, which for me is a very last option would be kind of dry lot management. If we just don't have pasture resources, uh, there's, you know, there's an option to dry lot manage on your operation. And then there's outsourcing dry lot management, which is for me, that's, that's even lower. If I'm trying to maintain a biosecure herd that moves me past my point of comfort. But I mean, sometimes you have to do what you have to do, especially when you get into extreme drought situations. Well, and Brian, I want to follow up on your comment there about maybe early, you talked about early preg check. Could this be an opportunity to 
maybe, maybe I can tighten up my calving season. Maybe, it, maybe yeah. I can come in and, and is there anything else that I'd think about to maybe say, well, I'm going to try to make this positive and I'm going to have to call deeper. What else can I do along those regards? Yeah, no, I think, and I think those two things go in tandem, right? Is that once, once you get into that, we've reached the point where we understand the drought is extreme enough. We are going to have to call maybe a little deeper than we would in a normal year. Then, then the tightening the calving window kind of goes hand in hand with that because, okay, if I know I'm going to call deeper then it makes for me, at least it makes the most sense to, I want to call the open cows, the ones that aren't paying for themselves as, as Dr. Larson would say, you know, and the other, the other thing that could go along with those two things would be if I'm thinking about transitioning my operation to a timed, you know, a timed insemination protocol or a synchronization protocol, maybe going from natural breeding completely to some artificial, you know, if I want to do those things, this might, if I'd already been thinking about that, this might be one more thing that kind of pushes me that way. Um, and certainly those timed programs will, will help tighten up that window. So I think you could do kind of all of those things in one year. If you, if you felt like you had to do that for drought reasons. So take a negative and make it into a, a positive. And I think that leads right into Philip. I think you had a question. Yeah, I was going to ask Dustin, we're, we're talking about colon reducing the herd. You know, what are some of the long-term financial implications of that, that we need to think about? You know, we're kind of trying to just get ourselves through the immediate short term, but some of these decisions are going to have long-term implications. So yeah, there's, just think about the economics for a second, right? In the short run, probably you, you might have some higher hay prices just because everybody's going to be higher demand for hay, maybe a shortage as well. Coal cow prices, if everybody is selling off their cows, prices of cows could come down. So that's another short run uh, implication. One thing that we've talked about in the past podcast, and again, this is maybe a negative, how to take a negative and turn it into a positive, like Brad indicated, but you should be talking with your financial, your banker, your lender. Again, this is, you're thinking short run, but again, this might be putting in strategies in place on, on, on some of these longer run issues, uh, such as coaling as an example. Another, another thing, thinking about this, you, everybody's talked about so far, but it's a negative, how to turn that into positive, and that's your record keeping, right? You guys have talked about coaling, we've talked about certain pastures or this or that. Hopefully you've got records such that you can make some uh, uh, objective decisions, but if you haven't done a good job keeping records, maybe this is an opportunity to start keeping records and figure out which record keeping records should we be keeping. Now, coming back to your question, Philip, about you say long run and coaling decisions, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, you know, maybe you've got the records and, and you've kind of prioritized which of these cows uh, you should be calling, but I mean, it's definitely going to have a long run implication because when you start to try to maybe retain heifers or maybe go out and buy heifers in the future, others might be doing the same thing. Prices could be, could be a lot higher. So any specific recommendations from a financial standpoint, and I don't know that I have any, but there's definitely... Probably a lot of people are just thinking short run, but I'm glad you asked that question. People really need to be also thinking, you know, two years, three years out as well. Because it impacts the herd over that over that long run. And and just like you were talking about, we've got a lot of investment in those. And, and kind of our last resort is culling cows, right? I mean, other than open cows and for the typical reasons, but 
unless I really have a plan to change my herd size, you guys talked about some other potential trying to get some other feed sources, trying to make this into a positive. We didn't really mention much, but it, it may even be time, even though some of these calves aren't born, but it may be time to start thinking about, do I have an option for early weaning of my calves, right? Would that be a, a management technique that could help us get through? Um, yeah, I, I, oh. yeah, go ahead, Philip. I, I think, I mean, I think we've talked about that in previous podcasts, but I guess, and I'll let Philip add his two cents in too, but I mean, I think, I think that is an option, but it does require it. You can't just wean them, you know, especially if we're talking, you know, a month or two months earlier, uh, we, you can't just do it the same way you do with, with older calves. So, um, it does require a little extra planning it. You're going to have to, you know, if, if it's, if it's, if traditionally you've kind of done like a hard weaning where you just wean them off, put them on the other side of a fence and, and they're weaned and, you know, it's probably going to require a softer weaning for those younger calves, or you're going to probably experience some pretty extreme health challenges. Philip, did you have something? Sorry. No, you're fine, Brian. So one, the thing I was going to, to talk about is, you know, we wean those calves off of there and pull them off the pasture. That's going to reduce the, the grazing pressure or the mouths that feed out there on the pasture a little bit. Those calves aren't eating, a, you know, a ton of, of feed there in late summer. Uh, but one of the, the big savings in feed is it decreases the intake of the cow. Lactating cow eat will consume, you know, 20, 30 percent more feed each day. And so if I pull the calf off and dry her up, then her intake drops off a lot. And so that will save me a lot of feed. And then from the other aspect too, now I've got a dry cow that's in mid gestation uh, or even maybe still in early gestation and her nutrient requirements are really low. So now I can buy and use some pretty poor quality forage to fill her belly and she'll get, still get by all right. So that that improves your ability to manage this drought situation quite a bit by pulling those calves off early. So ho hopefully, and you guys have put out some really good thoughts on, on drought, and hopefully you don't have to deal with this, but if you do, we'll put some information in the show notes, and that leads us to our cattle chat checklist this week. Our BCI cattle chat checklist this week are tools and techniques to manage and plan for drought on your operation. Number seven, procure feedstuffs for dry lot management of cows. Number six, schedule early pregnancy check and culling. Number five, identify additional grazing lands such as CRP. Number four, plan for early weaning of calves. Number three, consider both the short and long run economic implications. Number two, plant alternative drought resistant grazing crops. And number one, determine the optimum order of culling from your herd. And that's our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist for this week. Last topic I wanted to touch on, Dustin, was, was relative to conflict resolution. We know sometimes on the, on the family operation, conflicts can arise. What are, some of the, what are some of the techniques that we can use to kind of manage those amicably? Well, I mean, conflict is probably always going to arise, right? And nobody likes dealing with conflict. That's just human nature. But... We know it's going to rise. We know we're going to have to deal with it. And so what are some ways one might be able to do that? You know, I'd hope, hopefully, at least the way I approach it here in my job at, at here at K-State, you know, try to collaborate, you know, 
try to find a, a situation that's win-win for everybody. Maybe it's not best for me. Maybe it's not best for somebody else, but see if there's a, if you can collaborate together and try to find some kind of win-win situation. Sometimes you got to accommodate others as well. Maybe it's not exactly what you, like I said, you were, you're wanting, but if you let somebody else, their maybe desired goals or outcomes, that, that could be a, another way to maybe re- reduce some conflict or, or resolve the conflict. Yeah. So, co- so compromise part of it. And I, and I think the other part that's sometimes seems like it shouldn't be challenging, especially when you've got family, but, but certainly can be is communication, that open communication. Cause you're saying give, get, get the person what they want or give them what they, but you have to know what they're, what they're thinking. Don't you, you guys think that's part of the process. That's what I was going to say is the, the places where I've seen a lot of conflict on, on family operations has been because, because nobody knew what the expectations were. And usually that's, that's the generational conflict between the older generation that kind of owns, manages, and then maybe the next generation is moving into that role, but there aren't clear expectations for exactly what needs to be done and how that process will take, will go. And then everybody's, you know, there's frustration and, and some conflict because i as a younger person, I felt like I, I should have been in there or have already moved into this role and there's still this kind of developing, not sure. So I think having very clear expectations, especially on family operations, I mean, even on operations that aren't family, everybody needs to know what's expected of them in their job. But on family operations where there's a, a transition to an ownership, that that is the number one thing I've seen become a problem. Well, and, and I'll follow up on what you're saying there, Brian, because it's sometimes it's that well, of course they know this, or of course they know I want this, but but it's not a given unless you have said it and made it clear. They just may not know. And there, there's the there's the of course they know, and then there's the from the other side they should know, right? Yeah. So everybody thinks everybody knows, but nobody does, and that's where you end up with really bad conflicts. Yeah, and, and that frequent communication. It can can certainly help, but you've got to be able to get to what are some of the big issues as well. So I think that's one of the that's one of the topics that as you as you work through it, maybe even setting some of those meetings because sometimes we let the, we just let the day run itself and based on our chores and what we're trying to do. But go ahead and consider setting a meeting and and talking about some of those issues and try to instead of working on the resolution side to work on conflict avoidance if possible. So hopefully you've had some some good discussion here today as we've talked through some of these topics. And as always, we're happy to have questions, comments, or anything you'd like us to talk about. You can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.